Just one verse. One verse. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Romans 8, 5 through 13. We have seen Paul is basically comparing and contrasting Two different categories of people. What are they? Those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. But, guys, what we don't want to miss, what we don't want to pass over, is the reality that these verses are not just the result of Paul's random thinking. You guys know what I mean by that? Paul doesn't just indiscriminately or by chance just happen to be talking about the flesh and the Spirit in these verses. Now, it's just not out of the blue. These verses... Now, now follow this. Because one of my agendas way back when we first started the book of Romans was to not simply go through every verse, but to look at the forest, not get so taken up with the trees, and look at the overall flow. Now, what I want you guys to see is that Romans 8.13 is somewhat of the last link in a living chain that goes all the way back to Romans 6 and verse 1. Can Christians continue in sin? Now, what I want to do this morning is stop right here at Romans 8.13 and look back over our shoulders and examine the path that we have walked down right up to this point. Because I want to make certain that we all see how this verse and the things that have come before this all relate back to that original question put forth two and one half chapters earlier. And the reason I want to do it right here at verse 13 is because it seems that Romans 8.13 is the last verse in which Paul directly answers that question. From here, he seems to begin to diverge and transition. But this seems to be the last solid reference to a direct answer to that. From Romans 
up to 8.13, Paul, by at least 11 different arguments, makes the point that true, justified men and women do not and cannot stay in, remain at, persevere under, persist with, practice, or tarry, or abide, or be habitual with, or carry on in, or continue in sin. Now, is that important? Let me explain a little to you as to why it is definitely important. Listen to this. This is really phenomenal, guys. Back in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God is, you don't, don't turn there. Don't turn there. You just stay right there in 8. There's just a few words I want to quote from there, and I'll give them to you. You can, you can hear them. I want you to hear them. God has given a title in Romans 4, 5 that really ought to get our attention. The Lord God is called... Are you ready for this? Do you really want to hear what He's called? Listen, folks. The great God, the one who is called in Scripture, holy, holy, holy. That God who Psalm 5, 5 says, hates all evildoers. The one who is offended by every sin and is of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk tells us that God in Romans 4, 5 is given an absolutely staggering title. He is called Him who justifies the ungodly. We might easily see how He could be called Him who hates all evildoers, but Him who justifies the ungodly? Do you realize what that says? That says that God looks at a bad man and says, good. Folks, that's phenomenal. There's only one way for a bad person to get right with God. Only one way. Ungodly people are made right with God if and only if God says they are right with Him. And the question of the ages, how can God just do that? When we are bad, how can He just say we're good? When we're not right with God, how can He just say we are right with Him? Folks, this is the question of all questions. This is what the gospel is all... This, folks, do you realize this is the thing that angels just desire to peer into and figure out? What a truth. Now here's the point. God does justify, not the righteous, He justifies the ungodly. But he doesn't just do it. 
as though he just ignored that we're ungodly. Oh, no. God justifies the ungodly at an enormous price. Ungodliness demands wrath and it demands death. So God put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice to suffer that wrath and that death in the place of the ones who deserved that wrath and that death. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here's the point. When an ungodly person Oh, if you're in here and you're ungodly, this ought to bring you tremendous hope. When an ungodly person looks at the crushed Christ and takes that crushing as having been done for himself, believes it for himself, casts himself on this mighty saving Christ, in that moment, God says righteous. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal truth. Sinless, good. Although ungodly as they are, I mean, that's who's justified. It's the ungodly. God, God looks at the ungodly and because of what Christ did, that man, believing that that work was done for him, at that moment, God says, though ungodly, he says, godly. Wow. That man is legally declared to be righteous. Not because of that man's own righteousness, because he doesn't have any. He's ungodly. But because by grace, God freely forgives him and counts him righteous on the basis of the death and life of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, that is justification. That is justification. It is the total legal eradication of all our guilt. And it is glorious. And it is free. And it is by God's mercy. And it is by God's grace. And it's only to be had by faith. Not according to works of righteousness which you have done, but according to the work of Christ that He has done. But, some object to this. This is too easy. You see, this is what they say. Well, if, if it's that easy, if this is true, and God just justifies people by grace through faith apart from works of the law, it seems to open the doors to more and more sinning. It seems to actually invite wrongdoing. If God declares me good when I'm bad, <clears throat> so what if I'm a little badder? Can't God forgive sin? Can God forgive sin if there's a little or a lot? I mean, Brother Freddie talked about, you know, he brought up, we have this parable, right? Christ is sitting there eating with the, with the uh, Pharisees. And you remember the, the woman who was a sinner came in and started washing his feet. No, the Pharisees over there grumbling. I don't think really knew. And he said, look, 
Simon. Some people love a little. Some people love a lot. The people who love a little have been forgiven a little. The people who love a lot have been forgiven a lot. Here's the, here's the deal. Can God forgive a little or a lot? He can forgive both, right? And so if God can forgive a little and forgive a lot, well, I mean, hey, come on. If he's justifying me not based on what I do, if I add a little more sin to the pile here, he can still forgive it, can he? I mean, he's the God who can forgive a lot. He tells us in Scripture, chief of sinners can be saved. Well, I'm not quite the chief yet. I'm not as bad as Paul. So, hey, if I'm going to be saved so freely by this grace, even if I add a bit more sin on the pile, I'm probably not getting to where Paul was. I mean, after all, folks, if, if, if I'm really accepted based on Christ's righteousness and not on my own righteousness, well, then if I'm a little more unrighteous, I'm not damaging his righteousness at all. Right? If I'm, if I'm justified not based on my performance, well, let's just make my performance a little worse. You see, folks, that is the great objection. And that's how lots of people think. Well, here's, here's I mean, folks, does Paul's radical teaching on justification open the door to all sorts of sin and careless living and indifference to holiness? Does it? Does it foster wretchedness? Does it produce people who practice sin and keep on doing evil? Does it produce people who are captive to sin? That, folks, is what prompted the question way back there in Romans 6.1. You can turn your Bibles there. A question Paul is still answering two and a half chapters later in Romans 8.13. And here is the question that Paul asks. A rhetorical question. He's not looking for your answer. He already knows the answer. He asks it just by way of posing what other people are saying, full well knowing that he has the answer, he intends to answer it, and he does it with great detail. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is there a continuation in the sin in the life of a person who has experienced the justifying grace of God? And here is where Paul takes his stand. He boldly answers. You've got your Bibles open to Romans 6. Look at verse 2. What are the first three words that just hit you right in the face? By no means. Yes. Justification is absolutely free. No, it's not due to our own ability to be able to clean up our lives. That's all true. That's very true. Nevertheless, Christians will and must and do resist and battle and triumph over sin in this life to such a degree and to such an extent that it must be able to be said about them that the very character of their life is that they do not continue in sin. He says by no means do they continue in sin. So whatever the Christian life looks like, it better characterize something along the lines of not continuing in sin. I hope everybody can see that. Now, all I did was tell you by no means. I really didn't get into any degree into any of Paul's arguments, which I'm going to do. But listen, this is one of the greatest and most essential issues pertaining to the Christian life. Did you guys all hear that? Greatest and most essential that have to do with it. Why do I say that? 
How can I know that this is indeed one of the greatest and most essential issues pertaining to the Christian life? Is that just because I make that up? Is it because Paul says that right there? Listen, I'll give you two reasons that it is. First, the Christian life is the only life that leads to eternal life. If the Christian life must be a life characterized by triumph over sin, then that alone is the life that leads to eternal life. If eternal life is at stake, that makes it great and essential. Second, Paul doesn't answer this question one time and one way. He literally makes his point no less than 11 different ways throughout chapters 6 and 7 and right up to 8.13, this reality, this truth is driven home with such repetition and clarity and power and logic and inspiration that no one in this room should ever miss this point. Christians don't continue in sin. Only great and essential truths require such massive emphasis. So, let's run down this path. You know, look over our shoulders, starting 8.13, looking back to 6.1, and we're just going to reflect for a second here. 8.13, are you there? If you're at 6.1, go to 8.13 now. Read it with me. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, folks, let's make this real, real simple. You don't, well, yeah, why don't you turn there? Look at Romans 5, 18. It's real close. You're probably back one. Romans 5, 18. I want to read that to you real quick. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, the only thing I want you to see there is justification and life go together. Do they not? Condemnation and death go together. Justification and life go together. Everybody sees that. Okay, back to 8.13. Justified people will live, right? Because justification and life are attached in 5.18, right? So, justified people will live. Now, you're back here at 8.13. All others will die. You all believe that, right? Nobody's sitting there saying, well, I don't really know if that's... Did you see 5.18? It said, justification and life go together. Do you all believe that? You've got to be justified in order to have eternal life? Because you've got to be declared righteous by God if you're going to have eternal life. You've got to have all your guilt eradicated, folks, to go to heaven. Okay, so you're, you're all confident in that. Justified people will live. Okay, so whoever the ones are in 8.13 who will live, they must be the justified people, right? Is that not safe to assume? Because you've got some people in here that are dying, some people that are living. We know the people under condemnation, they're the ones that die. People that are justified, they live. Well, we've got some people in this verse living, so we know whoever those people are, they must be the justified people. You all agree with that? Good. Well, who are they? They're the ones who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. 
They're the ones putting to death things like, remember, deeds of the body, works of the flesh. We're talking the same thing here. These are the people who are putting to death sexual immorality, impurity, unbridled lust, idolatry, witchcraft, drug abuse, hatred, fighting, jealousy, fits of anger, selfishness, divisiveness, heresies, envy, drunkenness, partying, or some translations, orgies, things like these. In other words, by the Spirit, they put sin to death. Now, here's the thing, guys. Would it be safe to say that what this person is doing here is putting sin to death? Would that be safe to say? Would it be safe to say that putting sin to death is not continuing in sin? If I put sexual immorality to death, am I continuing in it? Of course not. So here's what we know. We know that if we're justified, you will live. We know that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Conclusion, justified people are the people who put sin to death. No exceptions. If you don't, you die. That's what this verse says. That's how certain Paul is that justified folks do not continue in sin. This hits close to home. For if you're truly justified, you will have a history of sin killing. There will be a path of carnage and slaughter and death wherever you walk. And I'm not talking about among people or animals. Or, I'm talking about with sin, with lust, with immorality, with unrighteousness. Now listen, put to death is a present tense active verb. You have been doing it since you became a Christian and you are doing it right now. You are putting sin to death now. And that is the same as saying you are not continuing in sin now. Would you all agree with me? Paul made his point very well right there. Now see... In Scripture, if we said, okay, well, he said it once, boy, that's Scripture, we need to run with this. But what if he says it ten other ways, ten other times? You begin to say, you know what? This is not only biblical, this is like one of the most essential things that we can find in the Scripture. There aren't a whole lot of things, folks, that two and a half chapters are devoted to to explain. When God decided in His Word to give us that much space to it, it must be because it is just very often neglected, likely to be not believed, likely to be attacked, likely to be distorted, likely to be a target of the devil, likely for false prophets, false teachers, false apostles to misconstrue. Would not all that be correct if that much time and effort is devoted to it? Okay, very quickly, Romans 8, 7 through 9. We dealt with this last week. Let's back up and look at it. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh... Remember, the mind that is set in the flesh is the mind of the people who are in the flesh. People who walk according to the flesh. They have minds that are set on the things of the flesh. They're hostile to God. That hostility shows itself in the fact that they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, it doesn't, that kind of mind doesn't have an ability to submit to that law. Those who are in the flesh, of course, if they're not submitting to His law, they cannot please God. You, however, these are the Christians. These are the saved people. These are the justified folks. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Again, let's make this real simple. If you look at verse 10, you'll notice, right in verse 10, it says this, the Spirit 
is life. Again, we know that justified people have life. Romans 5.18 says that. If the Spirit is life and justified people have life, then justified people must have the Spirit, right? I mean, we could prove that a lot of different ways. Of course that's true. They're in the Spirit. If they're in the Spirit, they're opposite of those that are lost and in the flesh. Those in the flesh are hostile to God and do not submit to God's law. Christians, however, are not in the flesh, meaning that they're not like those who don't submit to God's law. They do submit to it. That's what it says in Romans 8.4. Romans 8.4, it speaks there about the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. As I reminded you all last week, this is exactly what the new covenant says. Ezekiel 36.27, I will put my spirit within you, now listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey His rules. That's exactly what He's saying. He's saying, look, if you're in the flesh, you don't submit to God's law. But you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. And what is it that the Spirit under the new covenant was meant to do in us? Cause us to keep His commandments. To fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Folks, this is exactly what's said throughout the New Testament over and over. I'll just give you one example. 1 John 2, 3, and 4. By this we know that we have come to know Him. How do you know if you're truly a Christian and have come to know Him? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says I know Him, whoever says I'm a Christian, whoever says I'm justified, whoever says I'm in Christ, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. So here it is. As Christians, do we continue in lawlessness? What did all these verses just say? As a Christian, no, no, we don't. Does God's Word teach that we're these perpetually wretched individuals who can never do right and no matter how hard we try we just can't keep on breaking God's law that may be your definition of a Christian but that is not the Bible's definition God sent his son and gave his spirit in order to cause us to be careful to obey his rules now I just ask you this simple question can you continue in sin if you are keeping His commandments, walking in His statutes, carefully obeying His rules, and fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Can you? You can't. Because continuing in sin is breaking His commandments, is forsaking His statutes, disobeying His laws, and failing to uphold the requirement of the law. Folks, God sent His Son to do what the law never could to condemn sin in the flesh in order to create a people that would be fulfillers of the righteous requirement of the law. You can't argue that. There is overwhelming biblical support for that truth. Christ came to make all things new, including how the ungodly regard the law of God. So Paul asserts, justified people again don't continue in sin because they don't continue in lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness, according to 1 John. Okay, now look at Romans 8, 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, we established back when we looked at this that the word law, as it's used here, is used the same way we would use it, not when referring to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, but like we would use it when we refer to the law of gravity. It describes the way a force behaves. Gravitational forces behave a certain way every time. 
So we call it a law of gravity. Sin is a force, likewise behaves a certain way all the time. So we call it the law of sin. How does sin behave? We know how gravity behaves. How does sin behave? Well, Paul tells us, Romans 6, 6, sin seeks to enslave. Romans 6, 12, sin seeks to reign in our mortal bodies. Romans 7, 5 and 7, 8, sin uses the law of God to provoke and arouse more and more sin. In a very general way, that is the law of sin. But here's the question. Does sin behave that way? Does the power of sin behave that way in Christians? Are justified people in bondage to the law of sin? Paul says, no. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free if you're in Christ Jesus from the enslaving law of sin. Those who continue in sin do so because they are in bondage to the law of sin. But we are, that are in Christ are freed. And free people don't continue living according to the law of sin. Not if they're set free from the law of sin. It's amazing how much effort and how many different ways Paul keeps hammering and illustrating and explaining that we don't continue in sin if we're Christians. Romans 7, 6. Back up to there. Now we're released from the law. Now it doesn't say we're released from sin specifically here, but it says we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now, did you guys see what's being done here? There's two ways of serving. One is under the old written code. And what's the other way? In the new life of the Spirit. Now, serving is a word that means performing the duties of a slave. That's the idea. What is our slavery like as a Christian? Is it under the old letter or the old written code? Or is it in the spirit? Are we slaves under righteousness? Slaves to God? Slaves, to, you know, that's, that's how Paul in Romans 6 describes that. Well, I want to develop this a little bit for you. Go back to Romans chapter 2 and look right there at the end of the chapter. Romans 2 verse 26. Because there, Paul deals with these two realms. The one in the old way of the letter or the old way of the written code and the new one of the Spirit. He gives us more definition there. And I think it's, this is just crucial, folks. Look there, Romans 2.26. So if a man who is uncircumcised... Who are the uncircumcised? Gentiles. So, now listen. If you, if you get the whole context here... Paul is talking to Jews very specifically in Roman, the later part of Romans 2. Well, really, he starts right in the beginning saying, you know, if you're judging, and he's dealing with, with the self-righteous. And that typically, he dealt with the Gentiles in the second half of Romans 1. He kind of breaks over and deals with the Jews in Romans chapter 2. And he's, he's developing this whole argument. Now watch this. He says to them, look, if a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law. He's not just talking theoretically here. Well, if somebody could, he's actually referring to somebody who does. And I'll show you that as we develop this. He says, if, if you have this man who's a Gentile, uncircumcised, he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his 
uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. You see what he's saying? Keeping the precepts of the law is foundational for true circumcision. Is that not what he says? Then he, this Gentile, who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, he'll condemn you who have the written code. See, there's our word there. Written code. This is a Jew who's under the old system, under the written code. He has physical circumcision, but he breaks the law. And he's going to get condemned by this Gentile who does keep the law. He's not circumcised in the flesh, but his circumcision, well, it's going to be explained very shortly here. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now, you see the comparison? Spirit and letter. Spirit and the old written code. Here's what you've got. If you are in the new life of the spirit, not in the old life of the written code, you know what's true about you? You're a true Jew. You're a true Jew because you've got true circumcision. Not one of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart that is done by the Spirit. And the very grounds of that circumcision is keeping the precepts of the law. You see that, folks? Can I continue in sin? If I'm a true Jew with a true circumcision, serving in the new life of the Spirit? No. A true Jew's got to be truly circumcised and true circumcision is based on keeping the precepts of the law. Now I realize that's kind of a reiteration of the fact that we will be those who keep the law, but I wanted to build on that because it also means we're those who are true Jews, we're those who are truly circumcised. Romans 7.4, check that out. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You see what's happening? No longer are you connected with that law. Now you are joined with Jesus Christ. Joined with him, married to him. You're coupled with him. Why? In order that you can do something. Bear fruit for God. Do you see that? Christians bear fruit for God. Now let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. Is fruit for God good fruit or bad fruit? Fruit for God is good fruit, right? God doesn't accept bad fruit. If it's fruit for God, it's got to be good fruit. Now let me ask you this next question. Does good fruit come from good trees or bad trees? Good trees, right? Everybody agrees with that. Definitely comes from good trees. Now listen to what Jesus says about good trees in Luke 6.43. No good tree bears bad fruit. Here's my question to you. Can good trees bear bad fruit? Why? Well, I would say just because Jesus just said that it can't. I mean, there might be other good answers, but that's a good answer, right? If you can say, well, Jesus said it. 
Jesus said good trees don't bear bad fruit. I just quoted him saying that. He said they can't. So if bearing fruit for God is good fruit and it comes from a good tree and good trees can't bear bad fruit, then let me ask you this question. Is continuing in sin good fruit or bad fruit? If it's bad fruit, can it be hanging on that kind of tree that bears fruit for God? Romans 6.22, jump back there. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Just one thing I want to pull out of there. It says Christians, justified people, they have become slaves of God. Does it not say that? Is a true Christian a slave of God? How do you know that? That verse I just read said that, right? Okay. And we always know what God says in His Word is absolutely true. Okay. Now, check this out. Romans 6.16 says that you are a slave of the one you obey. Does it not say that? If you are a slave of God, then what must the conclusion be? You obey God. It must be that. And if you are obeying God, can you be continuing in sin? Because sin is disobeying God, right? Again, Paul driving home this fact. No, we do not continue in sin. A slave of God cannot. He obeys God. Now find Romans 6.18. Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. Now, right there. Set free from sin can't mean continuing in sin. Why? Because that wouldn't be freedom. Freedom means I've escaped its mastery and its power. It means it no longer controls me like it once did. I'm free. You simply can't make that to mean anything else. So I don't continue in sin's bondage if I'm free from that bondage. Does that make sense? And Paul is just incredibly logical here. Romans 6.17 Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Paul is thanking God, clearly because God has done something that deserves credit to be thanked for. He's done something in the lives of these Roman Christians. What is it he's done? What has God done here that he needs to be thanked for? He's freed them so that they become obedient from the heart, right? He's transformed them. They were once slaves of sin, which means they once practiced and continued in sin, but he's made them to be obedient from the heart. God makes this happen. That's why he's being thanked for it. God sees to it that Christians cannot continue in sin. That's got to be true or he would never be thanked for it. He does it by giving an obedient heart. That's the new heart that he promises under the new covenant. Again, an obedient heart doesn't continue in sin. And then Romans 6.14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Wow. I mean, what can be more plain than that? Are we to continue in sin? Isn't even the issue. Can we continue in sin? How can we continue in sin? If its dominion, its power, its authority, its mastery is broken. Christ condemns it. He kills it. He dethrones it. Hear this well. No dominion over you. Romans 6.11 you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul wouldn't tell us to consider ourselves dead to sin unless we actually are dead to sin. 
What does being dead to something means? mean? I mean, I, we can remember John Seitzman standing here. He's talking about, you know, the guy in his church over there who the father basically said, you're disinherited. And what happens if a father, a radical Hindu father, says to a Christian son, look, you're disinherited, and as far as I'm concerned, you're dead to me. What does that mean if we say we're dead to something? I mean, one thing for certain, it means that the relationship that that man and his son once had is severed. If I'm dead to sin, my old relationship with sin is terminated. Sin and I do not relate the way we once did. My former relationship with it, where I just ran in it, I continued in it, but I'm dead to that now. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified. Do you see that? There's a way we used to be. And that's called the old self. It's that old thing that loved sin, drank sin, delighted in sin, constantly continued in slavery to sin. But listen, it was crucified. Christian, you are not your old self. Romans 6.13 says that you have been brought from death to life. You're a new man, a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away or you're not a Christian at all. The crucifixion of that old man means the crucifixion of my old sinful lifestyle. Romans 6, 4 says, we walk in newness of life. There is regeneration. I am changed, radically changed. Hey, Paul, do Christians Walk in sin. He's like, well, let me tell you. They're brought from death to life. They walk in newness of life. The old self is crucified. They're dead to sin. Sin can't have dominion over them. God has made them obedient from the heart. They're free from sin. God has made us His slaves. They're good trees bearing fruit for God. They serve in the new life of the Spirit as true Jews with true circumcision. The Spirit of life has set them free from the law of sin. Christ came to make them law keepers. By the Spirit, they put to death the deeds of the flesh. I think He's made Himself quite clear. I mean, don't you think He's made His case? And if He hasn't, if that isn't enough, at least seven times through these three chapters, of Romans, Paul says in a variety of ways that if you continue in sin, you will die. Not the least of which is Romans 8.13 where we started. If you live according to the flesh, which is another way of saying if you continue in sin, you will die. Now I just want to say two things as I wrap up here. I make no apologies for believing that as Paul describes himself in the second half of Romans 7, he is definitely a Christian as he writes it, but he is describing himself as he was while he was still under the slavery to sin. Why do I believe that? Because he says that. He says in Romans 7.14, he's sold under sin. All you guys have to do is grab a... Some, some type of Bible help, look at the word sold and grab your concordance 
It is not the common word for sold. It is a word that means sold as a slave. It means that. Paul says, I am sold as a slave under sin. The term sold, folks. He's sold to it. He's owned by sin. If anything should be evident to you, it is the fact that Paul unequivocally, profoundly, dogmatically, and repeatedly asserts that Christians are not slaves of sin. They're slaves of righteousness, yes. Slaves of God, yes. But free from sin. Never a slave to it. Romans six seventeen. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Romans six twenty. You were slaves of sin. But the Paul that is being described in Romans 7.14 is presently sold as a slave to sin. Also, Romans 7.14, Paul says about himself that he's of the flesh. Now, is that a Christian? Romans 8.9 says Christians aren't in the flesh. Romans 8.4 says Christians don't walk according to the flesh. Romans 8.5 and 6 say that Christians don't live according to the flesh. They don't set their minds on the things of the flesh. Then you have Romans 7, 18 and 19. Romans 7 again. The man there, Paul, describing himself as he was when he came under conviction of that law, but still continuing in sin. How do I know that? He says so. 7, 18 and 19. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. But look it. He has no ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's no exceptions here. He says, this is the pattern of my life. This is the run of my life. This is the character of my life. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, would you please think about that with me for a second? The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He's continuing in sin. Period. If Paul has done anything throughout these three chapters, it's proved that this can't be a Christian. Then you have 7.23 and 25, where he's describing himself as captive to the law of sin. Romans 8.2 expressly says, justified people, Christians, those are set free by the law of the Spirit of God from the law of sin. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are free from the law of sin. You are not captive to it. Someone will say, yeah, but it also says in that portions of Romans 7 that, that he wants to do good and he delights. Now, you know, Freeberg says this word could be easily happily approves. You guys would agree with that. Delight and happily approve. In the law of God. With his mind, he serves the law of God. But did you just hold on just a second? Whoever said that's a good thing? It is serving the law and serving under the old letter that Paul has been saying we need to be delivered from. This is no different from how Paul describes the lost Jews in Romans 2.17. And so right as we end up, I want you to turn Romans 2.17 because I want you to see this with your own eyes. What Paul says about no ability to do the law, and yet he has the law, serves the law, knows the law, delights in the law, is no different than describing the Jews as he describes them, the lost Jews he's describing in Romans 2. It is no different. Because he says, these are the ones that are going to be condemned by those who keep the precepts of the law. So obviously they're not keeping it. He says they don't keep it. 
We looked at that already at the end of Romans 2, but look at Romans 2.17. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. Romans 2.18. You know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Romans 2.23. You who boast in the law. You see what these guys are doing? They're relying on the law. They're approving the law. They're boasting in the law. Does that sound any different than the guy in Romans 7 at all? That's exactly what he's doing. He's approving it. He's boasting in it. He's relying on it. He has it. But with all the law he has, what doesn't he have? A discontinuation of sin. And what is his point over and over and over and over again? Christians don't continue in it. So here it is, folks. Why do I say this? My brother, my sister, I say this not to discourage you. Oh, if sin is dominating your life, I definitely want to discourage you from believing you're a Christian. But to those of you that are fighting it, you're putting it to death. You know, if you look behind you, you can see you're not what you used to be and there is a path of carnage and death to sin and immorality and lust and a wicked mouth and your filthy lifestyle that lays in ruins behind you because you fought it and by God's help and through this Spirit, you have put these things to death. Then I don't say this to discourage you. I say it so that your faith might just lay hold of this and give you that encouragement to motivate you that look at all that God has done to assure you that this is the case. Look at all that God has done in sending His Son to make you a fulfiller of the law. Look at all that God has done to send His Spirit to break you free from the bonds of that law of sin. Look what He's done in sending that Spirit to make you those who are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And having done all that, you will live. But I encourage you. If sin dominates you, sin has no dominion over the Christian. You're not saved. Don't say you are. You need to go back to the beginning and start all over again. But remember this. Justification comes by believing what the risen Christ did on that cross. What He did for me in simple faith. Believing it. That's how you're justified. Paul's reality all through this is if you're justified that way, it doesn't lead you to believe. You can just go out there and live any way you want because God dispatched His Son to this earth and released this powerful Holy Spirit into the lives of God's people in order to make justified people into law-keeping people who do not continue in sin. This is the reality, folks. Brother, sister, you are risen to newness of life. Your old self is crucified. You've been brought from death to life. You're dead to sin. God promises you sin will not have dominion over you. God has made you obedient from the heart. He has freed you from sin. He has made you a slave to Himself. Made you a good tree. A good fruit bearer. Fruit for God. You serve in the new life of the Spirit. You are a true Jew. You are truly circumcised. That's a reality. The Spirit of God has busted you loose from that law of sin that held you in its 
grasp. You are now one who can be a doer and a fulfiller of the law and you can put this sin to death. You not only can, you must. This is glorious reality. What we find out is salvation is not this little deal where you believe these little facts and you just walk on in your life the same as you always were. If there is not this radical severing with sin, you are not truly justified. But I'll tell you what. I know some of you look at... Look, I want you guys not to sign your name to Romans 7. I want you to sign your name to this list that I've given you of these 11 things and say, I believe it, I know it, and I'm going to walk in it. And you go out with that confidence into this world and you can say, by the Spirit, no, not in your own strength, not in your own, but you walk in the power of another, but because you do, because, you know, we get discouraged. I can't do this. You're absolutely right. You can't do this. But you look. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And degree by degree, He will transform you into that image. The Spirit of God will do that. And in order for you to get into His image, there is a perfection that is wrought in you. And every time, I mean, what does God have to do? He pairs off that sharp edge, that thing over here, puts it to death, and as He pairs it off, there it falls, and you go on your way, and now as you get at this point in life, and you're able to look back, and you're able to see that scrap there, that immorality there, that lust there, that thing peeled off there, by the Holy Spirit, I lost that. Listen, I can do that. I look back, and I say, you know what? When I was lost, I had a filthy, foul, disturbing mouth. But I can see it back there. I can see it laid beside the path I've walked. How? Not in my own strength. And every true Christian in this place knows that's a reality. But if you're sitting there questioning because sin is so real and so dominant in your life and you're questioning this, well, you have reason to question. I don't want to encourage you. But those of you, you know you've fought. You know you've put it to death. You know there is no continuation in it the way there was before. You erase your name out of Romans 7. You're not there, my friend. You're not the person who perpetually keeps on doing evil and can't do anything about it. It's captive to the law of sin, sold under sin, and of the flesh. That's not you. You're not in the, in the flesh, folks. You're in the Spirit. You're triumphant. You're the triumphant ones of Jesus Christ. You're the ones, remember how we read about it? Oh, I saw that text there. What is it in 1 Corinthians 15? You are the glory. This church is the glory of Christ. He didn't save you to make you wretched. He didn't save you to make you these, these perpetual evildoers. Take your name out of there. Hang it on all these things. This is you, Christian. This is you. May you take that, believe it, and run with it. You can kill this thing. You can beat this. You must. Those who put to death the deeds of the flesh live. All others die. Father, 
We thank you for such a marvelous and a radical salvation. Regeneration. Christ came to make all things new. Oh, Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.